Hello and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. We've released over 200 episodes of Beyond Well and we're really proud of some of the shows we've done. We want to make sure you've had a chance to hear some of the best. We've gathered up the most incredible episodes that we've done on bipolar disorder and we're going to highlight them in the next few weeks. Before we get going, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Active Recovery TMS, for their support of our show. TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation, and with neighborhood offices to make it so convenient for you, Active Recovery TMS is your choice for transcranial magnetic stimulation in the Pacific Northwest. Active Recovery TMS has recently begun adding therapeutic sessions as well. And for more information or to find out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. As we highlight past episodes we've done on bipolar disorder, let's revisit our discussion with Willa Goodfellow. Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. I have yet to read um, very many accounts that actually explain the detail of bipolar disorder, the mania, the fear, the palpitations, the bodily changes, the brain changes better than Willa Goodfellow's book in Prozac Monologues. This is one of the most riveting firsthand accounts of um, actually living with bipolar disorder that isn't being treated properly. And Willa goes into great detail about the medicines that were used on her before she found her own path out to wellness. I want to welcome Willa Goodfellow to the show. Hi, Willa. Oh, hi. So pleased to be here, Sheila. I want to start first with your background as a priest, because I think this might be the first priest I've had on our program. Tell me a okay. little about that. Well, I am an Episcopal priest. I was ordained in 1982, one on the earlier end. So I've had a long ministry. I've worked in a variety of settings, small churches, large churches. Uh, campus ministry was one of my loves. And I still work part-time, not employed, but I'm part of a little congregation. It's called Mutual Ministry, where every member is a minister. And so I am one of many, one of the ordained ones, and preach about once a month. So I want to ask the question right off the bat. When you begin to notice the difference in your pace of thinking, in your output of writing, in the way that your brain was uh, giving you messages around who you were and what you could accomplish, did you think, in, was there any part of you that thought, oh, this is a God-given gift. I, I now have all this extra energy and I have all of these grandiose ideas and I think this is something that's come from my relationship with God. I don't know that I put it in quite those terms. I was indeed pleased. I didn't think of it as from God, but I did think it was miraculous. And when I started writing the book, I wrote nonstop. And I couldn't stop because I thought of it as something that was temporary. Something like that had never happened to me in quite that way. And I needed to get all of these thoughts down just as quickly as I could because I had a feeling that they were fading. 
Oh, how interesting. I want to start with this paragraph. Elevated or irritated mood, inflated self-esteem, decreased need for sleep, pressure to keep talking, flight of ideas, distractibility, increase in goal-directed activity, psychomotor agitation, excessive involvement in pleasurable or risky activities. All right. All of these symptoms together in many, many ways for people that begin to experience the rush of mania are somewhat pleasant. No? Yes, usually. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I had that one experience of hypomania. I probably had hypomania-like episodes many times earlier in my life. And it always was wonderful to be able to get so much done, to have so much energy and power and charisma and ability to make friends and influence people. After I started taking antidepressants, I never had that kind of happy hypomania again. Oh, interesting. People think of bipolar as either way happy or way sad. It doesn't always work that way. First of all, the mania part simply manifests in energy, mm. not necessarily mood. So high energy can go with irritation just as well as it can with happiness. Mm, I, I will tell you, um, my late husband was finally diagnosed with bipolar two, and he never had the happiness part. His mm -hmm. was always the energy with with this distinct feeling of an ease, an itch yes. he couldn't scratch, a yes. place he couldn't get to. He never enjoyed it. And I know that a lot of people who are listening who also struggle with bipolar disorder are shaking their heads yes. You yes. Know, that it's often in, in the media portrayed as just this wonderful period where you're spending and you're having lots of sex and it's so great. But for many, many people, it just feels like, you know, Dante's 10th circle of hell. So. Oh, it's, it's horrible. I, if that's combined with depressive mood as well, what's called a mixed episode, it really is a deadly combination when you not only feel like you don't want to go on living, but you have the energy to do something about it. I want to talk, Willa, if we could, about what happened when you were put on antidepressants, because mm -hmm. my understanding is that most practitioners, at least psychologists and psychiatrists, are now aware that antidepressants are very, very dangerous for people with bipolar so talk to us about why it was that people couldn't tell that you had bipolar disorder, because I think that's very common. And then indeed, what happened in your body when you began taking Prozac? Well, it is very common because, uh, and especially with bipolar 2, people with bipolar 2 experience depression 40 times, 40 times more than we experience hypomania. So... We don't go to the doc when, oh my gosh, I'm writing a book. Oh my gosh, I've gotten all this work done. I've got seven different projects going on. I don't have time to the, go to the doc, but why would I go? Why would I complain about that? We go to the doctor when we feel our most miserable. And that's what the doctor sees. The, you go through the checklist. I was diagnosed major depression, and I was convinced for many years that I had major depression because all of my symptoms fit, and that was the major part of my life. The other thing, most doctors will do a minimal screen. Now I'm talking about family practitioners, those psychiatrists miss this diagnosis just as often as family practitioners do because they'll ask, have you ever had these other symptoms, symptoms of mania? 
when you feel, this is true for everybody, when you feel miserable, you have a really hard time remembering good times. Mm -hmm. And when you feel great, the bad times fade. That's right. So doctors are trying to diagnose this by asking questions of the person who is not competent to answer the questions. Now, if they asked a family member, that family member might be able to give a much better report. Mm. So I was diagnosed with major depression. I'd had it for a number of years and it just wasn't getting better. And my doctor decided it was time to bring in the big guns. All of those self-help things just were not cutting it. Yeah. In very short order, I was irritated. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't concentrate. I was distracted. My sadness lifted, but it was replaced by all of these other negative feelings. Mm. I think irritation has to be the most unwanted experience that we can have, right? I'd almost rather have sadness than irritation. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) sadness is a lot less dangerous than irritation. Yeah. The doc, you know, listened to all of those complaints and decided, well, those are also symptoms of depression. So let's try giving you a higher dose. And in short order after that, I was having bizarre thoughts. I had this really scary experience walking into the doctor's office where a thought suddenly came into my mind of pressing the point of my nail file into her neck. Ah, this was very uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I can imagine, especially as a priest, a person who believes in actually honoring others' lives, you know? (laughs) Oh, well, I don't know that my priesthood really came into it. Um, I imagine nobody would be comfortable with that thought. But in addition to that, I had a lot of other feelings that I didn't even know how to name. Now I know the names because... 15 years later, I finally took that story to the therapist I have now, and I said, give me your most clinical language. Mm. So the language was depersonalization, derealization, trouble with reality testing, paranoia, and rehearsal, suicide rehearsal. Now, this, that one was really intriguing to me because many years ago, an, a psychiatrist had asked if I had ever rehearsed my suicide. And... I had in mind Harold and Maude, and that's not what she meant. She meant things like trying out different aspects of it, testing the method, as it were. There's another barrier is the doctors use language that we don't even understand. But anyway, I did not tell my doc that I had thought about pressing a nail file into her neck. And again, we raised the dose. I finally went off Prozac for another reason entirely, it gave me diarrhea. So I was just barely off of it when I went to Costa Rica. And then this book happened. I had been trying to cope with that thought and already I'm calling it a thought. It was a whole experience, but I just put a frame around it and I said, it's a thought. And I started writing a comedy routine. I figured that was the way I could manage it was to figure out what I could laugh at about it. So I was, so I wrote a monologue, but once I started, I couldn't stop. And in short order, over the course of seven days, I had seven monologues. 
I will tell you one of the experiences of reading it is that you haven't had an editor go back in and shorten the sentences and make them um, appear to be more deliberate, thoughtful, ponderous. Mm -hmm. You are in the mind of a person who is having an extreme experience, which I really appreciate, Willa. It's a, it's a very, I think it, it'd be a fascinating read for other people who have had similar instances of, of bipolar disorder where they are having these pressure thoughts and, and the ability, because the run-on sentences and what's happening in your life and how you're making these connections is exactly what it's like to yes. sit down with someone in this state. So congratulations for not cleaning it up as you will. <laughs> really Actually, you know, I did, I did somewhat, but I did it carefully because I, I wanted to preserve exactly that. Yeah. And some people find it disconcerting. People who have experience with bipolar or a family member with bipolar say exactly what you said. That's what it's like. It's up here inside the head of somebody who's going through something. And you know, you don't, you don't often get it represented on the page. We've had our experiences as family members speaking to someone, but I don't have my recorder out to capture it, to play back to someone. So I would suggest people buy this book and actually read it with their loved one and, and, and see, compare look mm -hmm. at whether or not their experiences are the same. I was so struck, Willa, that you kept on this, that you didn't just give up after that terrible experience with Prozac, that you kept attempting to try to figure out what might work. So talk to us about what came next. Well, that's what they tell you. It takes a while to find the right antidepressant. You have to keep trying. They don't tell you that if you've tried three times, then the chances are remote that you're going to find an antidepressant. And in fact, after two times, you need to start looking at your diagnosis again. I tried six and um, my psychiatrist wanted to try me on a seventh when I refused. So I went for a few years off the ranch without a psychiatrist and eventually found somebody else who was more cautious. In the meantime, I had had this random encounter on an airplane. I was traveling and thinking of writing an article for the American Journal on Psychiatry. Sometimes they do first person accounts. Mm -hmm. So I, I had that in my lap just to look at it and get a feel for the magazine. And the person next to me asked me about it. Turns out he was a family practitioner who worked in a psych unit in Des Moines. So he asked me what I was doing with that. And I told him the story of the monologues that I had written and how quickly and all of that. And I don't know if it was the volume of my voice, the uh, story itself, the fact that I was giving my medical history, my psych, my psych history to a total stranger on an airplane. Yeah. But he, he had uh, some suspicions. And he told me when I got home to Google MDQ, Mood Disorder Questionnaire. Just remember MDQ, he said. So I went, I went home, I looked it up, and that is a story told in plain English. It's not a list of symptoms that you don't understand. It's just 
have you had this experience? Yeah. Have you had that experience? Have you had this other experience? Yeah. And then you add it up. Ideally, you get a family member to do it for you as well because they perceive things very differently than you do sometimes. Mm -hmm. Depending on what your score is, well, my score said, yeah, you really should talk to your doctor about this possibility that you have bipolar. I did not want that diagnosis. I was pretty comfortable with major depression. I have had so many people tell me that, that they had a hunch while their psychiatrist was putting them on yet another antidepressant. Mm -hmm. They had a hunch about their own uh, diagnoses and they didn't want to actually face it because bipolar yeah. disorder still carries so much more stigma. It is so much less understood in society. And for that reason alone, they didn't want to actually have what they considered a much more serious diagnosis. I'm not the only one. <laughs> no, you're not. You also found eventually a psychiatrist who really, really listened to you, who helped you. And this, this um, actually dovetailed with the other experience of you finding a person who was interviewing people who were living well with bipolar disorder. So I want you to tell me how those two experiences have informed where you're at now. Well, one of the doctors is an expert uh, in bipolar and has written books about it, Dr. Jim Phelps. And he has a website, psycheducation.org. And he's one of these people who doesn't think that Increasing a medication that's not working is the way to go. And he pays a lot of attention to alternate treatments. And when I say alternate treatments, I don't mean instead of medication. I mean in addition to medication. Because lifestyle is huge. If, if you're asking medication to do all the work, it just won't. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of those studies of it, what, what they demonstrate is that the right med will lengthen the time between episodes, not eliminate episodes, but lengthen the time between them. But lifestyle is the part that gives all of those meds a foundation, provides a healthier person so that the med doesn't have to work so hard, so you can lower the dose. It also just occurred to me, Willa, that you did so much scientific investigation into the way that your brain works, the way your metabolism works, the way your hormones work, so that you actually sort of understood as a whole where you were at, this unique human being who had sleep disturbances, who had difficulties with you know, some th parts of your life in terms of overall lifestyle, and you went about altering those in order to help yourself. Yes, yes. Well, the, the point at which my life changed was when somebody handed me a book by Ellen Frank, Treating Bipolar Disorder. That's written for clinicians and it is a tough read. It's about social rhythms therapy and it's about making sure that key events that happen every day in your life happen at the same time. Because part of what's going on inside the brain People with bipolar have trouble with what's called homeostasis, mm. balance. There are all kinds of things in our bodies that sometimes you need a little more, sometimes you need a little less. Temperature rises and falls. Your appetite comes on and goes off at certain times of day. Hormones, cortisol, neo, uh, neurotransmitters, all of those, they don't stay at the same place. Even your blood pressure doesn't stay at the same place at the same time. 
the whole day. But with people with bipolar, when one of those measures moves to the edge, we have a hard time bringing it back. Mm. So when we slow down, we just can't get going again. And when we finally do get going, we can't stop until we crash. Mm -hmm. Learning how to reset the clock over and over several times a day has just really made a huge difference in my life. doesn't mean I don't have symptoms. And there are aspects of bipolar that are with you all the time, even when you're not up or down, but just when you're in what's called a euthemic state, a normal state, as you will, there's still difficulties that I have. Can you talk to me specifically about uh, this homeostasis and how you alter what bipolar disorder may want you to do versus what you know you need to do for your body? A really easy example is going out at night. I have to turn down sometimes some great parties or, you know, <laughs> a, friend, a friend is having a dinner party and it's on him. And I've been going for, you know, a few days ahead of time. And I knew that if I went to that, that I just would be totally off kilter and wouldn't be able to recover. Now, while I was there, I'd probably be the life of the party. Of course, everyone would want to be around you. You know, I think that this is probably one of the most jarring and, and painful aspects of bipolar disorder in children and teens is that they have to learn this same kind of moderation. And it does mean making decisions like you're an 85-year-old woman and not a 17-year-old man. And that part of it is just, let's, let's name it. It's hard, but it does keep you alive when you pay attention to this homeostasis, as you call it. I really, I appreciate you putting it in those terms. Gosh, it sure beats not being able to move the next day. Yeah. It makes it possible for me to follow my dreams, to do what I want, what I really want to do. I want to ask you, Willa, because I know a lot of people who listen to our program either love someone with bipolar disorder or they have bipolar disorder. What message do you have for them? For the family member. Yeah. Or a loved one. You're in probably the best position to know when it's happening, to know that something's off. If, this, if, your, if your loved one hasn't been diagnosed yet, you probably pick up on the signs much more quickly than the person themselves. I mean, I knew in Costa Rica that something extraordinary was happening to me. My wife knew that something scary was happening to me. Mm. We both told that story to my psychiatrist. I did first and the psychiatrist just thought, well, no, not, I don't think that's it. I don't think you have bipolar. But then my wife came in and she described the same event and the doc said, oh, okay, yes. Now the funny thing about it, I knew it was a symptom of bipolar, but when I hear my wife talk about it, I think, yeah, it really wasn't that bad. <laughs> that's so, that's such awesome insight. Isn't that I how we all are? <laughs> yeah, I still don't really have the insight. I have the intellectual information, but I just have to take her word for it. So to the family member, the loved one, I would say advocate, advocate. Willa, have you decided, are you going to continue to run this blog, to be in conversation with other people 
um, who are dealing with bipolar disorder? Or where does Prozac monologues go from the bookstore out? What's going to go on? Oh, right. Well, I continue to have a blog. I hope I can speak. I hope that book clubs can invite me. I mean, God bless the discovery of things like Zoom and Crowdcast. Yeah. Um, I'm perfectly willing and, and eager to continue this conversation. It is my ministry right now. The reactions that I get whenever anybody hears about the book, it's just they want this information. They want to know that they're not alone. It made such a difference in my life when somebody said to me, take the MDQ. Mm. Yeah. Or when somebody hand told me about social rhythms therapy, it those things turned my life around. And I want to be able to pay it forward. I love this book so much, Willa. It's going to stay with me for so long. And I'm highly recommending it for anyone who even suspects that maybe their diagnosis is off, that they're having the same kind of reaction to antidepressants that you did. And, and to learn firsthand from your account was just a lovely, beautiful, intimate experience. Willa Goodfellow, thank you so much. Can you just briefly tell us where Prozac Monologues is available? You can order it from your local bookstore, and I sure do encourage you to do so. <laughs> it's available also at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, but it, just wherever books are ordered, it's in general circulation. It's also on Kindle. I want to just continue to stay in touch with you, Willa, and wish you all good health because it's been a remarkable thing to get to know you and your journey through this book. And now I feel like I know you really, really well. The book is hilarious and insightful and so tender and God, honest. I really, really loved it, Willa. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's our program for today. If you love Beyond Well and you're listening routinely, please give us a thumbs up on Google or Apple or wherever it is you listen. Make it a wonderful day. And that was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. And I hope you make it a great day. Bora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Bora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.